Well, good morning, Hillcrest Covenant Church and friends who are gathered in your various places around the country or perhaps around the world viewing our worship service, either live now at, on Sunday morning or at some other time during the week through our YouTube channel. We're glad to have you. And uh, for those of you who are fathers, as I am, happy Father's Day. But I want to make another shout out today because in addition to today being a Father's Day, um, it's also my 36th wedding anniversary. I've been married to my wife, Roxy, for 36 years, and that's a long time. And uh, we have, as you know, traveled in a, a number of places. We've slept in a lot of beds over the course of our married life. And uh, when we arrived here about three or four months ago, we didn't expect this uh, coronavirus thing to basically put us in isolation. But in another sense, it's been kind of fun for us to sort of be together, be alone, and uh, watch some of our favorite uh, movies together. But uh, just to give you an idea of the kind of woman my wife is, and this is a shout out to her. Uh, when we met, we weren't dating yet. We sort of just had met each other when we were living in Sweden. And we, we, uh, my best friend Carl, he, we, he and I were traveling from Sweden to Austria to go to a ski party during the winter months, uh, during the winter break from this school in Sweden. And I asked Carl if I could invite a new friend along with us. And he said, sure, what's his name? And I said, his name is Roxy. And so he said, sure, why not? So we jumped on a train, and we took the train from Sweden to uh, Austria, Salzburg, Austria. The, the ski party was great fun. We skied all week. And then we had a few days left over after the party before we had to get back to school in Sweden. So we decided to jump on trains and try to sleep overnight on trains on our way back, and we stopped in various places. So this is between Christmas and New Year's, and we ended up taking a train from Salzburg, Austria, to Interlaken, Switzerland, uh, where there was three inches of snow on the ground. And we were looking around for places to stay, pensions, I think is what they call them. Uh, we couldn't afford hotels. We couldn't afford bed and breakfast. You know, the Airbnb uh, didn't exist back then. And uh, uh, in the end, we couldn't find a place to stay. Uh, so I said to Carl and Roxy, I said, hey, I, I noticed when we walked by the park in downtown Interlock in Switzerland that there is a, there's three park benches there, and we could sleep there. And you know where we slept that night? Uh, Roxy, Carl, and I, we slept on three park benches with three inches of snow on the ground in Interlock in Switzerland. It was at that moment I knew uh, the character of this woman. So Roxy, if you're out there, I love you. Thank you for traveling with me. And for the rest of you, thank you for indulging me to tell that story. And if you happen to see her, you can laugh with her about that story. Well, we find ourselves today in the beginning of a new series of sermons that I'm calling Summer in the Psalms. And the Psalms, uh, as most of you know, is the largest book in our entire Bible, and it represents uh, 150 chapters or separate psalms that make up this entire book of psalms. The book of Psalms is uh, classified as wisdom literature. Uh, you may know that already, or you may have never heard that before, but wisdom literature is a category of literature, like history or like the Gospels. You have this category called wisdom, which includes the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, some people call it the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Job. It's actually a section of literature that's my favorite, but uh, for most of us, aside from Psalms and Proverbs, we don't read a lot of those other books. When you read the Psalms, you will notice right away that they are written in sort of a poetic form. 
which means that you will see some of the common attributes of poetry being used in the Psalms, like metaphor, like simile, like parallelism. And, and that's, that's a shout out for all you English teachers and English majors. In addition to being poetic, the Psalms are essentially prayers that are addressing the various issues and challenges that the psalmist is currently facing. Now, somebody has said that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And as we spend the next few weeks together looking at the Psalms, I hope that you will, you will see how these Psalms are expressions of some of the deepest yearnings of the psalmists. For many of us, if we were asked to name our favorite psalm, many of you would immediately reply, well, of course, it's, it's Psalm 23. In fact, I'm going to have that psalm uh, read at my funeral, my memorial service, and, and often it is one of the favorite scriptures. Um, if we were pressed, however, to, to name another psalm, we might respond with David's psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, because we hear that read frequently uh, in, Lent, in the Lenten season or during Holy Week. And if we're pushed to name yet another psalm, many of us would not be able to name another psalm. And I, I point this out to you because as familiar as the psalms may seem to us, we have a pretty limited exposure to the psalms beyond a handful of our favorites. And if the size of the book of Psalms doesn't intimidate us, the 150 uh, chapters of the, of the book of Psalms, then the variety of, of psalm genres within the book of Psalms will likely confuse us. There are the wisdom psalms located within this wisdom book, which make reference to the wise or the foolish or the good or the evil sort of similar to the Proverbs. Then there are the Psalms of praise and adoration, which were often used in worship. They were, they were turned into songs and used in worship. In fact, we sing Psalms like that even now. Then there are the more difficult Psalms. There's the Psalms that curse. Did you realize that there are Psalms that actually curse, ask God to curse people? These are referred to as the impeccatory excuse me, imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist calls down a curse from God upon his enemies. And, and perhaps you've read those psalms and you've thought about your own enemies and said, yeah, I've got biblical precedent for praying like this. And then there are the royal psalms where the psalm was used sometime, perhaps during the coronation of a king or, or an important dignitary. And uh, so you, get, you see there's a variety of psalms. And as you can see, the book of psalms is a rich and varied compilation of poetry and song that is really unlike any other part of our Bible. Which leads me to ask one more question before we look briefly at our first psalm this morning. Since the psalms take up such a large part of our Bible, how were they used initially? To put it another way, What's the big deal about the Psalms? Why should you and I, people living in the 21st century, even bother reading the Psalms? What is it about the Psalms that when the books of the Bible were being gathered together into one book, someone decided to include so many of these compared to all the other books? And the simple answer is the Psalms were the prayers of the people, both 
privately and more often in public worship. And perhaps later on when the psalms were put to music, they became the songs and the hymns that the people of God sang in worship to remind them of the faithfulness of God. And one of the things that I love about the psalms is their absolute and utter honesty and often straightforward character. The psalmist doesn't pull any punches. If he's angry about something, he doesn't hesitate to express that to God. If the psalmist is feeling alone or afraid, he doesn't hesitate calling out to God to save him. And the most refreshing quality of all of the psalms is the fact that the psalms cover the spectrum of human emotion. The Christian reformer Martin Luther, he describes the psalms like this. What is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this earnest speaking amid the storm winds of every kind? Where does one find finer words of joy than in the psalms of praise and thanksgiving? There you look into the hearts of all the saints. On the other hand, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the psalms of lamentation? There again you look into the hearts of the saints as unto death, yes, as into hell itself. Well, uh, Martin Luther's known for using colorful language, but you can see uh, the way he's describing his appreciation for the Psalms, that it's, that, it's that, that gritty, that raw, that honest character of the Psalms that even um, Luther recognized. And oh, by the way, while we are spending our summer in the Psalms, we will have an opportunity for you to spend some time in the Psalms yourself. This week's e-newsletter will give you the opportunity to sign up to receive a psalm a day that will be sent directly to your inbox. There will be no commentary. There will be no additional devotional material that you have to read, just the psalm. And if you would like to uh, receive a psalm a day while we're spending our summer in the psalms together, just sign up and join the fun with many of us as we are reading and reflecting on the psalms day by day throughout the summer. So let's, uh, let's take a moment and look at Psalm 1, sort of as the entry psalm into the book of Psalms. And the psalm begins like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So there you have it, right at the beginning of Psalm 1, the first book of this large book of, of 150 psalms, the psalmist introduces us to sort of the overarching theme of the psalms. God's blessing is one of the themes, and our responsibility is the other. As is often the case in wisdom literature in particular, the psalmist is, is trying to make sense of his world. He's trying to understand the pain and the suffering that he sees all around him while at the same time holding on to his foundational belief in God. The psalmist sees the suffering all around him, yet he also experiences in the midst of that God's blessing. And that's kind of the way it is. Rarely, and at least in my experience, have I uh, been free from suffering or hardship or challenge, and if I'm not paying attention, not also be able to see God blessing me in the midst of that. And not because of it, and it's, and it's not that I have to go through that in order to be blessed, but, but it's when we pay attention, those two things often happen hand in hand. 
Well, let's uh, follow the psalmist's frame of thinking for the moment and see where it takes us. The psalm says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. This is the psalmist's way of establishing his understanding that a life of faith in the midst of suffering requires responsible action on the part of individual believers. Movement is really the kind of the key word here. Movement from a place where we find ourselves to the place where God desires us to be. This term, walking, is a is sort of a traditional metaphor that you will see in wisdom literature for pursuing a set of, of choices, moral choices in life. And we all have to do that. We're all on this journey. We're all walking to, to uh, be more like Jesus, and in the process, we have to make choices. And when we begin to, to make those choices, then we experience God's blessing, the psalmist says, in the midst of them. And it isn't that we only have to make those choices once and then never have to think about it again. Those who are blessed by God are those who are not afraid to face the moral choices that life presents to us on a regular, sometimes day-by-day basis. Now notice what I didn't say here. I didn't say God takes away our suffering because of our obedience. That's not how it works, although there may be some preachers out there that, uh, that try to suggest that. I said God blesses us in the midst of our suffering as we make decisions that reflect the very heart of God. Think about it for a moment. Who among us has not faced a moral choice in the midst of our suffering only to wonder whether we are doing the right thing and only to discover God's uh, blessing as we look back on those circumstances? Sometimes they're hard to see when we're kind of in the midst of the weeds, but uh, take the time. I, I encourage you to take the time and look over your shoulder from time to time and see if you can see some of the hard places that you've walked in your life and see where God has actually blessed you in the midst of those places. A blessed life is blessed because of the choices that we made to get us to that place and, and here's the important part, the relentless love of a generous God. The set of choices that the psalmist offers that lead to a blessed life begin with how we walk and then proceed to the place where we stand and finally result in the place where we choose to sit. If walking presents us with this sense of movement, a, a kind of commitment to make moral choices, then standing implies where we sort of settle in where we hang out, where we find our center in the midst of life's uncertainties. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, where you take a stand for the will and the ways of God will result in God's blessing. You see, it's, um, it's one thing to declare our obedience and allegiance to God in the safe confines of the church or a Bible study or in the presence of those whom we know and who affirm our faith. That's one thing. But it's quite another to take a stand for what we believe in the presence of those who don't share our convictions. It's another thing to put our reputation on the line for the sake of the gospel. It's one thing to say that we are followers of Jesus and we seek to embody God's kingdom wherever we live, wherever we go. 
It's another thing to speak up according to one's convictions when we see that which is contrary to the ways of God. My first job out of high school was uh, I worked for a, a railroad car assembly company, uh, and I worked on the assembly line. And it was probably, even to this day, the most difficult manual labor I have ever done. This was back in 1979. I know it dates me a little bit. I got paid, it was a union job, so I got paid $8.61 an hour. I remember that. That was a lot of money back in 1979. My job was to bend over at the waist with a, with a little a bib on and drop uh, lag bolts into holes on every other piece of flooring that was being uh, uh, attached to the bottom of the, of the train railroad car. And I, at that time in my life, I was a Christian, I was a follower of Jesus, but I was fledgling, I was, I was still trying to figure out what it meant to do that. I was, I was uh, a little resident sometimes to let other people know of my convictions. And uh, I wore a fish necklace around my neck, uh, sort of to remind me that, of the conviction and the confession of faith that I made when I found myself in places where maybe my faith was not being openly affirmed. One day, one of the guys that I worked with uh, on my crew came up to me and he said, hey, what's, what's that fish hanging around your neck all about? And I smiled and I, I, I thought to myself, okay, here we go. Should I tell him the truth or, or should I just sort of say something and hope he forgets and we can move on? And then I mustered up enough courage and I said, the fish is a symbol that the early Christians used to identify their allegiance to Jesus. I wear this fish to indicate my allegiance to Jesus. And he looked at me and he looked at me for what seemed like a, a, a long time. And then he said, hmm, that's good. Would you like to join a number of us for a lunchtime Bible study? And I said, what? He goes, I just wanted to check what kind of a follower of Jesus you were, that's all. Sometimes we've got to stand in places that represent our convictions, even though it might feel a little uncomfortable. Even though we may reveal who we really are to those around us. And, and when we do, the psalmist says that somewhere in the midst of that, there will be blessing. The way of blessing continues when the psalmist discourages us from sitting in the company of those who make fun of the values of God's kingdom. Uh, the psalmist talks about them as mockers. You see, the, it, it's one thing to make moral choices or walk in the way that reflect our desires to embody the character of God's kingdom, and it's another thing to be willing to hang out in a place and, and take a stand uh, where people of conviction aren't afraid to stand up for something that they believe in. Those are really important uh, attributes of being a follower of Jesus. And it's still another thing the psalmist is suggesting to avoid sitting with those whose cynicism colors everything that they say, that they mock everything that has to do with the will and the way of God. You see, cynicism is rampant in our culture. What begins as sort of honest critique can quickly move into a kind of cynicism and mockery that none of us are immune to. It's, it's a spectrum. I have friends who are, who are cynical about almost everything in life. 
Sometimes their cynicism is subtle, and oftentimes their cynicism is, is humorous, and other times their cynical point of view can be biting and destructive. And when the psalmist encourages us to walk and stand and then avoid sitting with those who mock God, he knows how easy it is sometimes to kind of get swept up by the humor, which leads to mocking cynicism, which ultimately has the ability to corrode our souls. So at this point in the psalm, the psalmist changes metaphors. And and instead of talking about walking and standing and sitting, he switches entirely to begin talking about a tree. And he says this, that person, this person who, who walks and stands and avoids sitting, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The one who who is blessed because they make moral choices that reflect their desire to love and follow God, the one who is not afraid to stand for their convictions in the face of potential opposition, and the one who avoids falling into the trap of cynicism and mockery is like a tree whose roots go deep and reach toward the nearby stream for water and for refreshment. You see, the, the health of a tree is really easy to recognize. You don't have to be an arborist. You don't have to be particularly good at growing trees. The health of a tree is um, pretty much recognizable, not only by the, the trunk and the size of the trunk or, or how, how big the canopy is. Those are some ways. But the way, if you want to know the way to know if a tree is good, take a look at the fruit. An apple tree that does not produce apples is not a healthy tree, no matter how beautiful it may look, no matter how much shade it may provide you in your backyard. You know, Jesus' parables pick up on this theme of fruitfulness in a number of places in the the Gospels, and he describes how the vines that do not bear fruit are cut off, and they're thrown out, or they're thrown into the fire. Just like a good fruit tree needs to have their branches trimmed from time to time, we go through seasons in our lives of faith where we need some pruning, even though it's painful at the moment. We will have a greater capacity after the pruning to be fruitful. And that's the point. And that's where we not only are blessed by God, but our fruit can be a blessing to others. And you know, that's not only true for us as individual uh, followers of Jesus, churches. Sometimes churches go through a season of pruning so that we can have a collective and greater capacity for fruitfulness. Remember that. So the Psalms prevent us, uh, present us with this vision for living a life that's, that's filled with blessing when we make choices that reflect the character of God, even when it's difficult or even perhaps unfair. A life of blessing is a life uh, of walking in the path where others may not go. A life of blessing is life standing with and for virtues of fairness and justice and righteousness, not because it happens to be what everybody else is doing, but because it reflects the very heart of a loving and just God. And a life of blessing is a life that avoids the trap of cynicism and disdain towards that which is good and true and beautiful, because all of those things are of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
the, this kind of life that I'm describing, that the psalmist is describing, is not easy. There will be times when we are tempted to simply go along to get along. There will be times when we don't feel all that blessed and we'll wonder whether God has our best interest in mind. And there will be times when God will prune us in order to increase our capacity for fruitfulness, and that will hurt. Yet in those times, where in the midst of all the challenges that we face and the weariness that we sometimes feel, God will call us back to this watering hole, this watering place where we can find life. The life that Jesus offered that woman at the well, that kind of life. That's the life that, that God wants us to experience even now in the midst of our struggles. I don't know how you feel about your spiritual life these days. Perhaps you're feeling all wrung out because of all the, the dr dramatic events that are taking place all around us. Maybe you've been slowly watching your faith sort of shrivel up and die a slow death as you've been distracted by all kinds of other matters uh, related to this coronavirus pandemic. Maybe you've been hurt deeply by someone or, or some life event that has caused you to wonder if God actually is paying attention and cares for you. Whichever is the case, I want you to hear me loud and clear this morning that God wants each of us to be like trees planted near the water. God desires to bless us in the midst of our struggle. And God yearns for us to walk in the way of righteousness, stand with those who are being treated unfairly, and avoid those who mock the values of God's kingdom. If you're uh, joining us online this morning and you have the uh, time uh, after the uh, service is over, I'm going to offer you uh, two or three questions that I'd like for you to maybe talk about in the, with the people that are in the room with you. Or if you're alone, um, you can just think about what your answer to these questions might be. How have you experienced God's blessing over the course of your life? And, and try to be as specific as you can as you think about and answer that question. Because I think blessing is one of those things that we kind of say, oh yeah, I've been blessed. But if you don't think in specifics, it doesn't sort of sink in sometimes. Two, when it feels like you are being pruned, and maybe you now feel like you're being pruned, how, how do you avoid becoming cynical? How do you avoid allowing your heart to shrivel up and die in the midst of that uh, painful period that you're going through? And then three, when your faith is, uh, is dry and parched, what steps can you find uh, to the living water that Jesus offers us, just like he offered the woman at the well? And I want you to think concretely about these, because this is weighty stuff. It's based in an experience that the psalmist had and that my hunch is most of us have had from time to time. In the end, the, the secret to being blessed is not that we earn it somehow, but it's that we worship and love a God who wants to bless us. And even though sometimes the path that we walk on is difficult, even, so the, even though the choices that we make can sometimes be hard, um, this God wants to offer unending blessing to us in the midst of those times. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks 
Today, as we find ourselves at the beginning of reflecting on this book of the Bible called the Psalms, and we are especially thankful that uh, even in the midst of the difficulty in life that some of us are facing even now, that you don't make us do that alone, but you are there offering us a hand up. You're there providing us the directing us to the water. God, may we be people of faith and faithfulness that um, are willing to take those initial steps and walk on that way of righteousness. May we be people that are willing to stand up for that which is good and true and beautiful and just. And may we, when tempted to become cynical and jaded by the stuff that's going on around us, may we uh, continue to hold tightly to that which is good and true and beautiful. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.